0: that these verses that are written, David loves the Lord, and he is he, he now is showing great wisdom after he, many ups and downs in his life, and he's showing how much he loves the Word of God. And I think going into a new year, I think this is a really good way for us to enter into a new year and learning from David why he loves the Word of God and why we should love the Word of God, and let that be our New Year's resolution to get more into God's Word and read it and memorize it and to use it, as we're going to see, as a light to our path. So we read here in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and I will perform it, and I will keep thy righteous judgments." I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Except I beseech thee the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Thou art my hiding place and my shield, I hope in thy word. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according unto thy word that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. And I will have a respect unto thy statutes continually. Thou hast trodden down all them that err from thy statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. You see some of these verses here? Can you pick out some of the words in these verses where David is talking about Scripture? Anyone? pretty much. And he has different words to identify Scripture. And these words actually are attributes. Like if you go into the confession of faith, you ask the question, what is God? God is faithful. He's just. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. Look at the attributes that all point to Scripture. In Word 105, it's thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. I will perform it. Thy judgments in verse 106. And he says thy word again in verse 107. Then he says thy judgments. And then he says thy precepts, thy testimonies, thy statutes. One word after another. These are important ways for us to understand how important God's word is and how David went to it. And as David here is the king of the north and the south regions, he's the most important, powerful man in the world. He knows he has someone to answer to. That he is not a dictator. That he is not presiding over people and claiming himself which many kings did as that he himself is deity but that there is one above him there's one over him he says here we see that David loves the Lord he says he is wiser than his enemies and understands more than the ancients because of the purity of the law to him it's as sweet as honey and he understands them and he hates every false way well, I think that's important for us to take a look at that this morning. He says he hates every false way because that is what we are surrounded with in this day and age here in our country, is that we are surrounded by every false way, where even Presbyterian, Baptist, evangelical churches, and many other churches have gone away from the truth of the iner- inerrancy of Scripture. Scripture. And we see false ways all around us. We see out in media that everything is proposed that is basically so many things that are against God's law. Things are being promoted. And so David here, he gives us a wonderful outline on what is true, what is wisdom. So we see here, it's a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. And how important it is to have light. It guides our footsteps. It protects us from danger. It discovers to us what we would not otherwise know. And we're in a dark place, that can be very scary. If you're in a dark place and you can't see your hand in front of your face, you can think about how frightening that must have been with that last, that that plague in Egypt. Remember that plague where it was so dark you couldn't see anything? It was that dark, and it can get that dark. And that's a very frightening place to be. But when we see that Scripture is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, we were talking last week um, about how the Paul, when he was finishing up speaking in Rome, we were seeing the end of chapter 28, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 and actually other verses around Scripture about those that are blind, that cannot see. They know things, but they don't understand them. And that is a very, very serious darkness. We see how, remember when darkness was upon the face of the deep. Remember there was a point in this part of creation where it was all dark. Can someone read Genesis chapter 1 verses 3 and 4? We don't go back to Genesis enough. We we really need to be back in Genesis and to go back to the beginning. Genesis 1, 3, and 4. Thank you, Matthew. And we see that when the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters, God said, let there be light. And we see the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Isn't that incredible? All throughout the Old Testament, we see the presence of the Holy Spirit bringing light, bringing light unto the world. There are examples in the Bible of light being an instrument of preservation and guidance. How about that pillar of fire that led the Israelites could someone look up Exodus chapter 13, verses 19 to 22? That's Exodus 13, 19 to 22. If you could read those verses, please. What a GPS system. God himself sending a light to direct the people of Israel. Out of Egypt, there's a pillar of fire, and as long as they followed that, the Lord was showing everywhere to go they would be safe. There would be no danger. And that's the light of the world. We see all throughout Scripture that Christ is the light of the world, but what do we learn about darkness? Anyone? Darkness cannot overtake the light. The light always overtakes the darkness. And what does that teach us as Christians? That Christ has overcome the world. If he is the light, if he he says, I am the light of the world, and he's overcome darkness, and darkness cannot overcome the light, then we can see who's already won the battle. We see in the temple, honoring the Sabbath day, in Exodus chapter 35, verse 14, the candlestick also for the light and his furniture and his lamps, with the oil for the light. Remember, Ezekiel speaks with God through a vision in the land of the Chaldeans at Kibar. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of lamps, and went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And some look up at John chapter 8, 12, which we were just talking about. Read John 8, 12. They will not have darkness. And we go all the way back to John 9. We talked about several weeks ago about that blind man. The blind man who saw darkness most of his life, what, up till he's almost 38 years old? He not only saw when his eyes were opened, he needed no therapy. He saw the light of the world. He saw the light in his heart lit up so bright he couldn't miss it. He was saved. And he physically saw the light of the world. He saw Jesus standing at the end of the temple. He walked out of the temple when the Jews cast him out and he saw the light of the world. Look at the light that was given to him. This is what David is talking about. He said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he says, I will perform it. I will keep thy righteous judgments." And he goes, even though I am afflicted, and very much the Lord will quicken me. In verse 108 he says, I beseech thee, or I beg thee, the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. These judgments, these precepts, these testimonies, to him... They were the light that lit up his heart and lit up his eyes. Why is Christ the light of the world? Let's read John. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. Can someone look up John 3 and read verses 19 to 21? These should be very familiar verses that we need to go back to. Why? That's John three, nineteen to 21. Anyone have that? And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hated the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But so he that doeth truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are not in God. Thank you, Lacey. This light of the world, it manifests all of our deeds. There's going to be a judgment. And the light is going to be shed on everything that we've ever done. That light of the world that comes into Christ, He takes over, He is that light and He takes over in our stead. But those that don't have that, they're in darkness. And And we read here, this is the condemnation. And I think it's fascinating in this verse... We read earlier in John 3:16, we read, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him, should not perish but have everlasting life." A lot of times in my Bible studies, I like to just pull out old tracks during my Bible studies and read old tracks. I was reading the one last night. It's about the fellow who moves up, and his his aunt. She's real powerful, and it, I think it's called. Uh, it wasn't called "Moving Up." It's another one, but this fellow is real. He's this, the, 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 the nephew's this real dope, and he doesn't know anything, but because his aunt owns all these big businesses, she moves him up the corporate ladder, and she shows him all these things, and along the way, these verses all pop in here. Uh, John 3.16, you see John 14.6, all throughout that track. And what happens to the guy is he moves all the way up the ladder, he, his aunt dies, he inherits all these businesses, he was worth millions of dollars, and then he he runs his airplane, hits the side of a mountain and he dies. And there you see him at the end of the track standing there with Satan after all the millions of dollars, all the money, there he is in darkness, down in hell, and there's Satan laughing at him. And I think it's fascinating, Pastor. So it's interesting talk about how light overcomes darkness. And the thing is you can see that just a little bit of light a long way. It does. Mm. And It's completely black down there but the slightest little light will go a long way. That's a good point. I was going out to my truck the other night and it was one of those real dark nights. I had my flashlight. I kept it in my drawer. Went out and evidently, you know how it always happens, the batteries are dim. Hit the button just enough to have a tiny bit of light and it was enough to get the job done. It doesn't take much. And here Christ is the light of the world that illuminates everything. It says that this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And basically here we see that the parallel is that darkness it parallels the condemnation. But we are innately, we are born in this darkness. As David said, I was born in sin and in sin did my mother conceive me. Born in this darkness. And we need that light of the world to bring us out of that. He says, I've sworn I will perform it. Remember, David bound himself to the promises he made with God. And as he got older, he showed wisdom. He, He had shown wisdom in how he had been through an awful lot. He had became a really good teacher. He was a work in progress. And he had made a covenant with our Lord. He wanted to be faithful. And we see in this verse here, he says, I have sworn... He says, I am afflicted. He said, my soul is continually in my hand. The wicked have laid a snare for me. In verse 111, thy testimonies have I taken in heritage forever. I have inclined my heart. He says, I have sworn. I have made a vow. What did Job say about women? Remember what Job said about women? Now we have this horrible thing today where there's so much adultery going on. There's so much promiscuity and all these horrible things darkness with all this adultery and all going on and everything Job did he had had everything taken away from him and he said I have made a covenant with my eyes can I look upon a maid he made a vow he swore he made a covenant that he would not even though his wife had been very hard on him he swore that he would not look at another woman and that's what David is saying here David had been through all these horrible things and he's coming down towards the latter part of his life and he's saying I have sworn, I have made a vow, I have made a covenant with the Lord. Have you ever done that in your prayers? Is there something really eating away at you, besetting sin, something that you're really struggling with? We've all been there and you just you, you drop to your knees and you beg the Lord, Lord. Make a, allow me, Lord, by, in thy name, to make a vow with you, a covenant that I will not go down this pathway. I will not let this consume me because you have said that it's wrong. It's either right or it's wrong. And where do people today do things just because it's right? It's the right thing to do. And a lot of times the hardest thing to ever do in life is the right thing to do. And David says, I have inclined, mine heart, I want to follow your testimonies and your statutes. Remember, an honest man is only as good as his vows. And as we look today, and I think that this is very, very wonderful to bring up this morning, being able to go and be able to... To fellowship with Pastor Olson and Miss Ira last night after 40 years of wonderful marriage, vows, covenants—you stand before you stand before a preacher and you make a vow that you will be faithful in death till death do us part to your spouse. 40 years of marriage—how wonderful is that? And we see how today that the marriage vows have been so perverted because of broken vows and the number. The number of failed marriages is staggering. And we see there been, there's so many vows that are made and so many vows that are broken. David says, I, I, I am inclining my heart. And he's asking the Lord to help him with that. I have sworn. It's amazing that even today, when one takes an office, they swear on the Bible to uphold the law. They stand in front of a courtroom and they put their hand on a Bible. And we look at these politicians that actually make a vow... And they're as corrupt as they can be. I they are going to be held responsible for that. You put your hand on the Bible and you make a vow in front of God and in front of people. You make an accord and you go back on that and you politic and you steal and you do all these horrible things that are happening. Look what just happened up in Maine this week. What happened in Maine this week? Anybody see that? What happened? What right did this woman have by herself to remove him off of that ballot? I mean, even if it was Joe Biden, even if it was anybody else, she had no right to remove that man off of that ballot. Nobody. She had no right to do that. But what comes out after that is that she did that because she is a no-name and she now is gaining traction in the public eye and she's advertising herself. now, And she is now putting herself in a position to run for a higher office. So she figures to get the attention of all the other liberals out there she's gonna do something bold and I'm gonna get I am gonna get for right now and it's only temporary because it has to go to the Supreme Court I am going to be the one that got Donald Trump off of the ballot I have the power to do that and so now look she's now in the public eye and they're looking at her what she's done is she's complete. I'm not saying Donald Trump is any Perfect paragon of virtue, but he's far better than this thing that's in there now. And but I can tell you this: what she's done is she sold herself to the devil because what she wants is backing by people. She knows that the greater part of the money and the backing will become coming from this genre of politics. She broke her vow. She did not have the people speak. She spoke for the people. That's politics. And we see that all the time in, in all kinds of areas of our country. People, they, they swear on the Bible to uphold the law. The Lord wants us to swear to keep His law, and He will bless us for certain. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. Can someone look that one up? And then someone else, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2. That's Isaiah 65, 16, and then someone following Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2. We we read here about the God of Truth. I think that's one of many endless, wonderful names of our Lord, the God of Truth. Isaiah sixty five sixteen. Anyone? Thank you, Dave. Jeremiah 4.2, anyone? If we worship the God of truth and if we obey Him and we understand Him, what did He promise in the Old Testament? What did He promise the nations? What would happen to them? Amen. There was nothing He wouldn't do for them. He would bless them. He would bless their marriages. Lisi. That's right. He, how many times did he bless even the unsaved and the pagans that were, that were there and blessed because of the prayers of the righteous? Many times he did that. Are there any examples in the Old Testament? Rahab. That's a very good example. There's one pushing towards the end of the book of Genesis. Probably one of the greatest examples in all of Scripture that a pagan nation was blessed because of one faithful man. Who was that? Joseph. Towards the end of Genesis, anybody can remember chapters 37 to the end? A whole nation he blesses because of one little Hebrew shepherd, pastor. Well, Joseph was an example of a little light a long way. Not- <laughs> That's right. That's right. And the bit that life a long way. Amen. The Lord spoke with him, and he, won, he winds up actually only in, only basically in, in mandate only was he second in command. But he was first in command in a lot of ways because it was his accounting that spared the lives of the people. Pharaoh didn't have that calculator. And he called himself the number one and the deity of the land. It was Joseph that saved their lives, and that was God that put him in that position. Lisi, right? That's a, that's a very good example. Abigail with David, and how important that was. I mean, you go all down, you go all down through the Old Testament. Look at Nebuchadnezzar, and look at how Daniel interpreted those dreams. Look how Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego stood up. Well. Swearing's not enough. Getting on your knees and getting down on your knees and praying to God and saying, having a, some kind of bad sin or something you're really struggling with, is it enough to just get down and say, I swear to you, Lord, that I will never do it again, and I promise. Is it enough? No, there has to be action. Faith without works is dead. There has to be a plan. There has to be a, a, some kind of a plan That you, by reading scripture and by just being patient, delayed gratification is so important. I love that term by Dave Ramsey. And that's a very important term that he has about Christian finances. And how many people, they go out and they spend way too much money up front before they have it. And they're not willing to have delayed gratification and to be patient and to wait and to make it you know maybe buy a house a little bit later and wait a little while till you have enough money to afford it and a lot of young couples today are in a lot of trouble because of credit cards and because of debt because they don't make that vow and they don't they don't follow that path of delayed gratification and just being patient and waiting till they're able to do things and i think that's very important in the christian life we have to be very patient we see here in these verses going forward in 107 to like one uh, 113, we see that David is an older age now, and he still reifies all these great words that he is afflicted. And this reminds me of how Luther was stuck in the tower and was hidden while he translated the Bible. He was afflicted, but he used the light of the world, he used the word of God to direct him and to keep him from just falling to in this horrible depression. You know, Martin Luther, if you study him. It's a fascinating study from when he left. He, he left, he was going to become a professor. He was going to be co- try to get, a, his father wanted him to get a law degree. He saw this lightning strike and all of a sudden he was scared to death of God. And he lived years. Remember some of the things that he'd done with the monastic orders. Remember he would be in the monastery and he would beat himself up. And he got to the point, and there's a quote, you can read a whole paragraph where he said, do I love God? I hate him. He, How can a God expect me to do this to myself, to be close to him, basically? And, ba- and so all of a sudden he gets into the book of Romans and he sees how Christ is the way, justification by faith, that, that, that we have faith in Christ and Christ takes away all of our sins. And there he is. All of a sudden it's just the whole burden was relieved from him because of that wonderful blessed faith and hope in Jesus Christ. He was, he was in bondage, but it was the Bible and it was Christ that brought him through that. Remember how John Bunyan was in jail in affliction, in affliction away from his family, writing some of his greatest works. How about Paul the Apostle, who we've been studying for, for, for years, and how even where, last week we finished up in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he's in jail, here he is getting ready to be, he's in the worst jail he could be in, getting ready to die. And what does he do? He says, I'm ready to leave. He said, I'm ready for my departure. My soul will depart from my body, and I'm ready for it. He didn't cry. He didn't sit there and curse God and sit there and say, where is everybody, and complain and moan. Even in jail, he said, do all things without complainings and murmurings. <clears throat> and in it, even in affliction, it was the Lord that lifted him up. Is suffering and infliction Here David's talking about here. He talks about vain thoughts. He says in verse one fourteen, "Thou art my hiding place," and I think well, I want to talk about that here in a minute. I think that's fascinating for a very specific reason. But is suffering and affl- is suffering and affliction is that part of the Christian life? H- amen. Well, that's not the end of the question. Is suffering and affliction part of people that don't believe in Christ's life? Of course. (laughs) I mean, there are hospitals filled with people that don't believe in Christ. How do you get through suffering and affliction without Christ? How do you do that without that comfort in that light of the world that sheds that light and shows you where to go with it? How do you do that? Well, Well, we know how, basically... This takes us to a real central motif about suffering and affliction in the Christian life. We're basically regarded, as Peter says, as strangers, basically, in a strange land. We're an- anomalytical. We're very strange. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, and their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. It's it's incredible. Just the other night, Lisa and I had an opportunity. A young couple asked us, they're outside of this church, and none of you know them, and they just wanted to sit down and pray and talk about some very hard-pressing matters. And there's this one matter where the lady, she's as precious as she could be, and she loves the Lord, and she's trying to help this young man, and she just kept, she was just upset. She, she kept saying, I, I just want to help him. I just want to help him. I just want to help him. And all I could say to her is, you can't save him. You can't. And at that point, when we have someone that we love, you've, have you all been there? Have you all been there with someone you love, maybe unsaved, or maybe they're saved and they're dying and they're having a hard time? Either way, you're trying to do everything you can to help them. But there's some things you just can't do, can't you? That's when we have to strip ourselves of our pride. And we have to, we have to put that before we go in there. And we have to pray, as David is teaching us here, To lay that in the bosom of Christ and understand we can't save them. But we have to plant, we have to water. And then what happens? Amen. God must give the increase. And sometimes that's hard for us. And we see when we go back to David saying, I hate every false way. I think one of the biggest problems we have with religion today... Is there are many churches that believe they have the power I don't even want to call it salvation the power of comfort and that's become the new salvation what 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 does that mean anybody can anybody help me with that what is that does the word prosperity sound very familiar go ahead Right. When really it can be a curse. Right. Not that, you know, not everybody's supposed to have nice things or something, but definitely if that's your focus and that becomes your God. Yep, yeah, right. Look at um, you go into the bookstores. I mean years ago, um what were some of the bookstores around? I mean some of the names of, Does anybody remember what was that one up there, Heart from All Faith? Oh, right. That was a good that was a pretty good store. Well, there was one that when Lisa and I, we were dating, we we first got married, there was one over there on Joppa Road. What was that one called? Greenleaf. Yes, thank you, Greenleaf. And then there was the one down here that went out. I mean, they never last because it's just... Right. Was it Lifeway? Yeah, they were going out of business about four or five years ago, and they, they were selling Bibles for like, like 20%, I mean 50% off and all. Right, uh, we bought a bunch of them. I mean, when you go in there... The self-help books. I mean, there's some really good books in there. You have good sections where you have good commentary from Henry and, and Pink and all. But then for, that's only this teeny tiny, I mean, if, if you had all of these were shelves, you'd have maybe this one down here, the very end. That one was filled with all the good books. But if you, I mean, the, the, the really good books from scripture or commentary. But the rest of it, it's like a whole self-help facility of psychoanalysis from Beth Moore. And what's this, and Paula White. And Joel Osteen, oh yes, every day can be, thank goodness it's Friday. You know, everything, and it's all, it's, it's comfort. It's all this comfort. I was listening to a message the other day where, actually I've been listening to series on the book, The Acts, and now I'm listening to the book of Galatians, and the announcer says, it's very sad to hear this, and this, this, this message was actually given in August of 2018, and the announcer who Wonder Just a wonderful fellow to listen to. He says, where do you hear the first chapter of the book of Galatians? And that's kind of like a little bit of a window of I think where I'm going to go next is the book of Galatians. I'm really praying hard about that. I'm not quite ready yet. But, but what I've seen so far in the first chapter, I mean, of course, we've read it, but you really analyze it. What a wonderful book to go into. And I think we're going to go down that road. But he says his words, and they were very sad. He says, Paul says anyone that preaches another gospel let him be accursed and how hard is it today the announcer says to go into church where the gospel is preached the percentage today of people that actually can define what the gospel is it's staggering that people have absolutely no idea what the gospel means what does it really mean Oh yeah, the good news. Oh, well, that's an easy one. The A1 Evangelion. Yeah, the good. What does it really mean? What are the details of the gospel? The details of Christ's ministry? Do you know the ministry? Do you know his parables? Do you know what he did? And what he came down and what he left to come down and do? <clears throat> David knows all of this. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Peter says we're strange. The Christians, you're strange. In this new Christian church, This that here we see in the New Testament, you're strange. You're anomalytical. You're a deviation from the norm of what's out there. Can you mention the name of God? Of course you can mention the name, that three-letter word. Everybody thinks that God could be anything. Then say the words, Lord Jesus Christ. That's what starts being, that's, that's what clarifies it. If ye, be repro- if ye are reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Because that is where you, if you're reproached, you're suffering for the name of Christ, you get through that by taking your mind and your heart, not just your mind, but your heart, and going right to the sufferings of Christ. He stripped himself of everything. You know, the verses we just read in 1 Peter can be broken down into four extremely important points when it comes to regarding suffering for Christ and being that stranger in a strange land. Number one, expect it. Number two, rejoice in it. Number three, evaluate its cause. And number four, entrust it to God. Those are four great ways that we can we can get through that. And here David says, he says here, I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes, even unto the end. He, David had been through an awful lot. He, then he goes in verse, he says, I hate vain thoughts. He had them, but thy law do I love. But then he says in, in chapter 114, I mean in verse 114, Thou art my hiding place. And I thought about that. I was reading about this. We've been reading it through the week. Thou art my hiding place. Where did I hear that before? in one context that in what context did i hear that well go back to psalm 32 then it hit me there are seven penitential psalms go back to psalm 32 look at verse 7 can someone read verse 7 please he say thou art my hiding place thou shalt preserve me from trouble thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance i think that's fascinating is the verse before that for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him this brings it all together David had said this in his 50s when he had had that horrible thing happen with Bathsheba. And then his, and then his, uh, his pastor comes to him and he gives him that, par- that parable of the sheep that was taken away. David says, oh, I'll kill that man. I'll go after him. I'll destroy him. Nathan says, where do you hear that it's you? You're the one that did it. You destroyed Uriah. You've committed adultery with Bathsheba. You caused all these problems. And then David writes these penitential psalms that shows us what it has. It teaches us repentance unto life. And that is actually, if you go into the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a whole study on repentance unto life with a drop-down of Bible verses that I really encourage you all to read. Repentance unto life is something you don't hear about anymore. And when David says, Thou art my hiding place, Thou shalt preserve me from trouble, Thou shalt encompass me with songs of deliverance, He's in the most abject agony he's ever been in his life because he knows I have sinned against thee and thee alone that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Thank the Lord he didn't leave it at that verse because then he goes into the next verse. For I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceived me. This is my nature. That is how you can get through these horrible times knowing what we really are. And when we know what we really are, David says, he he says, thou art my hiding place. Thou will preserve me from trouble. He didn't look to his staff. He didn't look for to, to all of his advisors. He didn't look for all the sorcerers and all the pagan gods around him. There was during his day there was what Astroop, there was Baal, there was Dagon and all the high places. He said, "Thou art my hiding place; thou shalt preserve me from trouble." But before that, he says, he says, uh, in verse six, I know that verse. Let everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely through the flood of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. He's saying, even in the worst times of people's life. And then he says it later on in Psalm thirty-two. People, even in the worst of their times of their life, they will not go to God. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's no wonder he says that. He says that I have sworn and I will perform it. I will keep thy righteous judgments. But he says I hate every false way. <clears throat> he says I will. Sw- I have sworn I will perform it. And we just we just talk, looked at Peter about. In First Peter, about uh, being as Christians, being afflicted and suffering, and all these strange things, and we know that Christ suffered on this earth because He was a stranger in this world, basically. And the Christian who is persecuted for his faith is a partner in the same kind of suffering Jesus endured, suffering for doing what's right. What did Christ say in the Beatitudes? We see in Chapter Five of Matthew, verses ten to twelve. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That's what we learned about with Paul. What did the Lord say? He said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. So persecuted they the prophets. They killed the prophets. They murdered the prophets. They murdered the apostles. They murdered Christ. Galatians 6.17, from henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. In Philippians 1.9, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. I think that this is extremely, this is profound with David. David is talking about his suffering. When he says, thou art my hiding place and my shield, I hope in thy word. And then here, then he gives a window into really what was going on in chapter Psalm 119, verse 115. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according unto thy word that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe, and I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. You know, th- these testimonies are David's heritage. David dedicated his heart to perform these statutes of the Lord. God made covenants. He has made covenants with us as he did David. David. What are some of the covenants? These covenants are our heritage forever. These are special possessions that the Lord gave us. Look at the covenant with Moses. The Mosaic covenant. Look at the laws that he gave. Look at the Abrahamic covenant. And what when the Lord spoke to Abraham? Do you remember when the animals, they were cut up and they were lined up? What is it that went down in the middle of them? Do you remember? Lisa? Lisa? it was a smoking flax, it went down, it was a light, it was a lamp, and it went down the middle, and the Lord told him, whatever you do, don't step in between that, I'm trying to show you something. Once again, we see the light of the world. God always has used light as a manipulative to teach us what we need to open up our blind and dark eyes and our dark hearts. So he gives us the light of the world. John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. One of the great I am statements. David's portion is the promises of God, so it must be ours. And this gave David comfort as we close here. Ever been promised some kind of inheritance? Some kind of a birthright or heirloom? Isn't that comforting to find out that someone you love would leave this world and want to give you something to remember them by? Well, we were given an inheritance. Christ died and went on the right hand of God. He gave us his word. Who is Micah 7, 7, 18 says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. That's an inheritance the Lord's given us. When you witness to family, when you witness to friends, you're there to give them this inheritance. You're there to calm them down and to encourage them, not to take them and break them in half if they don't understand what you may understand in Scripture, because you might not even understand what you think you understand. We haven't all arrived. None of us has put that flag up into the mountains that I have arrived and I have the Bible mastered. Our job is to give that inheritance, and I truly agree with Pastor Olson how one of the ways to do that subtly is to give tracts out. Give out good tracts that have Bible verses in it. It's a good, subtle way of getting the message across. I think ultimately to talk to somebody and to pray with them is the ultimate way to go, but if you can't, I think that's a great way to go. We'll finish with that and see where the Lord leads us next week, and I'd like to ask perhaps maybe if... Could I ask Matthew, could you close us in prayer this morning? Thank you.